Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. All right. This property is hereby condemned. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 66, Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. So welcome to this spookshill bonus episode for Halloween. Uh, this episode was not scheduled and to be honest, it was a bit of a late addition to the October roster and... I chose purposefully to not announce it or promote it in any way in the run-up to Halloween. And that was mainly because, A, I wanted it to be a bit of a surprise for Halloween. But also that was just on the off chance that I couldn't quite do it. Um, and it has been a bit of a stretch to get this done. Um, but to be honest, I kind of felt like if I announced it and then I let you all down, I'd feel quite bad about that. So, plus it is episode 66 and... I kind of figured with episode 66, you only have to add one more six and then you get the devil's number. And that kind of felt like the, an opportune moment for a Halloween episode that just could not pass me by. So this episode will be a little bit different uh, because technically it's a bonus episode. So there's not really going to be much in the way of what I would normally put in episodes. Um, so there'll be no listener comments because... None of you knew it was coming. Uh, it'll also probably be a bit shorter than a normal episode, um, but no less spooky, uh, <laughs> because this is Tales from the Crypt. Um, it was actually inspired, uh, really, by a recent rewatch uh, of Demon Knight, which also kind of transpired from the episode on Death Becomes Her, because Death Becomes Her started life as a Tales from the Crypt movie. And from finding that out, I basically went back and watched Demon Knight, which was a movie that I watched when I was much younger. And I remembered it so vividly and I couldn't remember why I remembered it. 
And then I rewatched it recently and I was just like, wow, this is really good, you guys. Um, so I just really wanted to do something on Demon Knight. And to be perfectly honest, because it's technically the Halloween episode, I've done some kind of spooky-ish episodes uh, in the month of October, but I wanted the Halloween episode to cover something that, let's be honest, not many other podcasts will cover Demon Knight. Um, and Demon Knight is 25 years old this year. So I kind of feel like now is the opportune moment to talk about Demon Knight. Uh, and also, now's the perfect moment to go in Zane <laughs> for Billy Zane. Because he's really great in this. Um, so, without further ado, uh, let's listen to the trailer for Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight. A.K.A. Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight, A.K.A. Demon Knight. <laughs> <laughs> Universal Pictures is proud to present the motion picture directing debut of one of America's most talented and respected artists. Cut! Cut, 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 cut! Oh, hello, kitties. So glad you could join me. Your pal, the Crypt Keeper, has gone Hollywood in a big way. I'm directing my first feature film. Care for a little shriek preview? <laughs> for my big screen premiere, I wanted lots of suspense. Special effects. Sex. Violence. The kind of thing you could really sink your teeth into. Rights! Camera! Action! is a man who carries the last of seven keys, special containers which hold the blood of Christ, and was scattered across the universe to prevent the forces of evil from taking over. If the collector gets the last key, the universe will fall into chaos, and he has been tracking Breaker all the way to a small inn in a nowhere town, and its residents, owner Irene, sex worker Cordelia, postal clerk Wally, town drunk Uncle Willie, surfer dude Roach, and ex-con maid Geraldine happen to get involved in the fight. Unable to cross the threshold, the Collector creates a team of demons to attack the building and starts to promise eternal life to the guests of the inn to do his bidding. So, the cast of this movie, and let's be perfectly frank here, uh, Frank Breaker. <laughs> frank, what? <laughs> his name is Frank Breaker. Uh, but let's be frank, uh, this cast is incredible. If you think about this movie... It's a low-budget horror movie 
from the mid-90s. And they got the following people. They got Billy Zane as the collector, William Sadler as Frank Breaker, Jada Pinkett as Geraldine, Thomas Hayden Church as Roach, CCH Pounder as Irene, Brenda Back as Cordelia, Dick Miller as Uncle Willie, Charles Fleischer as Wally, Charles Fleischer, the voice of Roger Rabbit, hello, and John Cassia as the voice of the Crypt Keeper. And John Cassia has voiced the character of the Crypt Keeper in all iterations of the series Tales from the Crypt and the films. That's right, Jess. He has. Why are you in here? Did the collector let you in? It's ironic, actually, because in the movie, Geraldine has a cat and uh, she does anything to save her cat. And I've just realised I've left the door open. <laughs> Jess is here. Anyway, we'll, we'll carry on regardless because it's a bonus episode. So it doesn't matter that she's in here. Demon Knight was written by Mark Bishop, Ethan Rife and Cyrus Forrest. And the movie was directed by Ernest Dickerson. So Tales from the Crypt started out as an EC Comics segment, which ran from 1950 to 1955 with different names for the first 20 issues before becoming Tales from the Crypt from issue 20 onwards for a further 27 issues until the series was cancelled in March 1955. Tales from the Crypt was a horror anthology comic with two stories told by the Crypt Keeper, one by the Vault Keeper and one by the Old Witch. The cancellation in March 1995 actually came about from fierce regulations governing the comic book industry in the 50s and that kind of restricted the use of words such as terror oh my god the word terror and horror oh no the word horror it's disgusting uh also uh forbade the depictions of zombies or werewolves and the creator of tales from the crypt a guy called william gaines or one of the creators i should say william gaines became so fed up with the censorship that he cancelled his own comic book series because he just could not deal with this anymore he wanted it to be horrific and, <laughs> and full of terror and full of zombies and werewolves and they just would not allow it um the series was actually reprinted several times so it was reprinted in the 60s in the 70s in the 90s and it was finally revived by dark horse comics in 2013 and that was with tales from the crypt volume 4 it was revived uh with a brand new series of stories in 2007 by paper cuts with 13 issues published from 2007 to 2010 and in 2016, Super Genius Comics relaunched Tales from the Crypt for two issues. A 1972 movie of Tales from the Crypt was directed by Freddie Francis, and that would consist of five anthology segments, mostly based on the EC Comics series. And that was followed by the popular HBO TV series, Tales from the Crypt, which ran for seven seasons, including a final season set in Britain. And most episodes of that show originated from the comic book content. And because it was a premium cable show on HBO, uh, it was allowed to have freedom from censorship. And so that show mostly contained quite a lot of graphic violence, profanity, sexual situations and nudity, which would be considerably censored and watered down once Tales from the Crypt went into syndication. And I mentioned in my episode on Death Becomes Her, which is episode 59, by the way, that that movie started as a Tales from the Crypt movie. From Dust Till Dawn and The Frighteners, both of which I enjoy very much, uh, also started out as potential Tales from the Crypt movies. But it's interesting to know that Demon Knight never started life as a Tales from the Crypt movie. It was never meant to be related to the horror comics in any way. It was just this perfect happenstance for it to become a Tales from the Crypt movie. 
With the inclusion of a few choice nods to the comic, mainly the comic itself, actually, and also kind of being bookended by the series Crypt Keeper. Uh, Demon Knight itself actually started out as a spec script written by Mark Bishop, Ethan Reif and Cyrus Voris uh, as a just a standard horror action movie, but essentially a hero story. And that was written in 1987, which was two years before the Tales from the Crypt TV series actually started airing. Uh, and it was basically one hero saving the world and passing the torch to the next. A standard tale of good versus evil with biblical references to the blood of Christ and kind of hefty heights to be a bit more costly than it turned out to be. But I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit there. Uh, the original Tales from the Crypt TV show ran from 1989 to 1996 and obviously spun off Demon Knight and Bordello of Blood. I'm not really going to go into Bordello of Blood because A, I haven't seen it and B, I've heard it's rubbish, uh, as well as an animated TV show. Uh, which was in 1993 that was called Tales from the Crypt Keeper which was a lot more toned down because it was obviously aimed at children that lasted two seasons on ABC uh, and was revived in 1999 under the title New Tales from the Crypt Keeper uh, a children's game show called Secrets of the Crypt Keeper's Haunted House ran from 1996 to 1997 uh, and in 2000 a radio show which was actually kind of a bit of a precursor to a podcast really as it wasn't actually a radio show it was more of like downloadable audio files which ended up getting released on cd uh, a spin-off pilot called two-fisted tales that was passed on by fox and basically what they did was they made that into additional tales from the crypt episodes by tacking on Crypt Keeper segments are at the front and end. Uh, and then finally, another spin-off uh, in 1997 called Perversions of Science, which was a science fiction spin-off. And that only lasted a month before it got cancelled. Uh, and that featured a female robot host in lieu of the Crypt Keeper. Demon Knight, going back to Demon Knight, because this is an episode on Demon Knight, by the way. <laughs> I just realised. I'm kind of going a bit back and forth. I do apologise. Um, so Demon Knight was originally due to be directed by Tom Holland, not the actor, by the way, uh, the director, Tom Holland, because there's two of them. Um, so he was the director of 1988 Child's Play and he was basically looking for a follow up. He had these ideas that it was going to be Chris Sarandon and Tommy Lee Jones. That was like his dream cast. But instead, he decided to pass on it. Uh, he passed it to Mark Carducci who then passed it to Mary Lambert. Uh, she was the director of Pet Cemetery. She instead would go on to make Pet Cemetery 2. Um, and that kind of bombed sufficiently that her ideas for Demon Knight, which included casting an African-American as Breaker, uh, she wanted Willem Dafoe as the collector. Because of the failure of Pet Cemetery 2, those ideas failed to get any investment. And so the project kind of remained in limbo. So it sat at Full Moon Features for a little while, before Joel Silver happened upon it. And I've mentioned Joel Silver a few times on this podcast. And he basically decided he wanted to resurrect Tales from the Crypt. He wanted to make a trilogy of Tales from the Crypt movies. And so he thought this would be a perfect second feature in a planned Tales from the Crypt trilogy. And he had a deal with Universal Studios. And basically they decided to plow ahead with Demon Knight over the other two options. Uh, so the other two movies were Dead Easy and Body Count. But they thought that Demon Knight seemed the most put together movie. And, and like I say, it's worth going back to the point that this was never meant to be a Tales from the Crypt movie. This was just meant to be a standalone horror movie. So it was in a position where 
it was the best sounding project that they had. And so Universal decided to go with Demon Knight. And the release date was planned for Halloween 1994. Uh, obviously, didn't quite meet Halloween 1994, but we'll come to that. Um, so Ernest Dickerson, who worked quite famously as a cinematographer for Spike Lee several times. He ended up getting the directorial gig after his directorial debut, Juice. And basically, a lifelong fan of horror, he ended up working with the writers to refine the script, including more mythology for the demons and more well-rounded characters. He was really invested in this project. He thought this project was great. And he's part of the reason why Demon Knight is so good. Things like he wanted the demons to be hard to kill hence you had to shoot them in the eye and that was one of the hardest ways to kill a demon was to get them in the eye and additionally as an african-american horror director which i mean it's a rarity now but imagine in 1994 when this was being filmed uh it was almost unheard of to have an african-american horror director so he wanted to employ as diverse a cast as possible um and not only is the cast diverse but it's also full of really recognisable faces, some really great character actors, and it is genuinely a cast that you wouldn't believe that they managed to get for this movie, but they did, and they're great. So production went ahead, and they actually ended up renting an aeroplane hangar at Van Nuys Airport. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Please let me know if I'm pronouncing that right, because I'm really struggling with this pronunciation. I think I've said it before. Van Nuys. Van Nuys? Van Nuys. I'm just going to keep saying Van Nuys. Uh, yeah, that place. Uh, the airport. Um, and <laughs> and so basically, they built the whole set for the inn or the hotel or whatever you want to call it. So they built it all indoors in this airport hangar. And that was really important because they could essentially control the weather and they could control the light. And that was really important because this movie is set at night and... If you can help it, obviously, you want to avoid doing shooting at night, especially when you've got continuous shooting. They did 40 nights of continuous shooting. Um, and obviously, a lot of the action was mainly set in one area. So it was really easy for them to build this in, in <laughs> an airport hangar and just kind of shoot all of the scenes and basically control the environment completely. Um, I mean, it wasn't particularly easy. Uh, because obviously all of the sand and all of the dirt and everything had to be shipped into this massive building. They also had problems with pigeons as well because the pigeons would nest in the roof above the soundstage. Um, so basically what they ended up doing, and it sounds quite horrific actually, but I promise it's not as bad as it sounds. So they actually started firing blanks. They didn't fire them at the birds. So obviously they didn't hit the birds and they didn't injure the birds. I mean, it's still quite cruel, I suppose, regardless of how you word it. But yeah, so they basically fired blanks into the roof. And so because they wanted the birds to stop making noise so they could do a take. So what they did was they would fire a shot. They would do the take as quickly as possible before the birds started making noise again. I talked about the cast. So I think I need to mention some of the really standout people. I mean, Billy Zane. Billy Zane. I mean, Billy Zane. <laughs> what? I just... This is the guy from Titanic, right? And how good is he in this movie? I mean, compared to Titanic, and I think Titanic is so-so. Uh, and I think him in Titanic is so-so. But Billy Zane, I mean... He is something in this movie. 
Uh, anyway, so Billy Zane, obviously, uh, he has pretty much always been bald. Uh, but he used to wear wigs for his performances. And he basically offered Ernest Dickerson a variety of wigs and basically said, look, what do you want me to look like? Which wig do you want me to wear? And Dickerson basically refused. Uh, he basically said, no, I think this character should be your kind of natural bold state. I think just do the character bold. Um, and Billy Zane agreed, thought that the collector as a character would probably be bold. Um, and it really kind of reinforced his career going forward because every single movie, I think, I'm pretty certain, well, every movie I've seen him in anyway, going forward from this, he's been bold. Um, and additionally, Billy Zane actually mentions in the documentary, uh, Under Siege, which this, this movie has its own documentary, it's brilliant, that he based the collector on Robin Williams' genie from Aladdin, but he wanted to do the genie from hell. Uh, and he wanted to kind of have this ability to produce anything at will to uh, support his aim of achieving this world domination. But he also wanted him to have the comedic chops and the wit. Uh, so I kind of just always see this as like this alternate Robin Williams character. And it, it does actually kind of work a little bit. I mean, obviously, Billy Zane is no Robin Williams, don't get me wrong. But I mean, Billy Zane... <laughs> I'm just so flawed how good Billy Zane is in this movie. But obviously also we have Jada Pinkett. Uh, and this was before she met and married Will Smith and became Jada Pinkett Smith. And Billy Zane actually called her a force of nature. Her character, Geraldine, is really the true hero of the story. Geraldine is smart, she's fearless, she's resourceful. But ultimately, and I can relate to this, she just wants to save her cat. Uh, and I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> why would you not? Um, so Geraldine is a convicted thief. She is on like working parole. Uh, and the character of Geraldine is, is usually the expendable one. Uh, and the original actor that Joel Silver wanted for Geraldine was Cameron Diaz. And I don't know what Cameron Diaz would bring to this role. I genuinely, uh, I love Cameron Diaz. I think she's wonderful. But I think Jada Pinkett in this movie is just, she's brilliant. She's actually a revelation in this movie. This was not her breakout role because her breakout role was in Menace to Society. Um, but Geraldine is, she's never a trope. She's never a black stereotype because although she's resourceful and strong, she's also really kind and compassionate and she wants to do the right thing. Uh, she's strong kind of physically and mentally and that's the most important thing because she is literally the only person who can resist the collector's evil charms. She actually, she feels almost like the precursor to Buffy. Except Buffy obviously existed back in 1992 uh, in movie form. But when I say that, I mean like TV Buffy. Because when Geraldine comes out of hiding, covered in the MacGuffin, Key's blood, uh, before spitting it in his face. I mean, it's gross, it's brilliant. But that is what Buffy would do. You know, if Buffy is faced with the ultimate adversary, this kind of king demon, that is exactly what Buffy would do. It's interesting as well, because the story of Geraldine's blonde cropped haircut, um, because when they cast Jada Pinkett, she did not have cropped blonde hair. Uh, and when she arrived for her first day, she did have cropped blonde hair. And the producers panicked. They were like, oh my God, we needed to dye her hair. And, and Jada Pinkett basically said no. She was like, I point blank refused to do that. Um, which is, again, exactly what Geraldine would do. Going back to Billy Zane. I mean, 
Billy Zane. I would never say that Billy Zane was my favourite actor. I mean, he's kind of far off it, let's be honest, because we know who my favourite is. Uh, he is so great in this movie. He's the epitome of this kind of suave, eccentric, bad boy, demon. You can kind of tell from it just the way he moves, the way he kind of slinks through this building that he has this power to manipulate people and especially the weak-willed and he specifically uses each person's weakness against them you know he plays on their whims and their desires and it makes for a terrific couple of sequences where he basically entices each character so for example with the drunk uncle willie uh he basically takes him to this bar where he's he's behind the bar he's making a drink uh because uh willie's an alcoholic so he entices him with booze and he entices him with big-breasted ladies uh because that is what uh drunk uncle willie wants uh is uh, as a drink and, and a big-breasted beauty and then with cordelia uh because cordelia is an interesting character in a sense that she is a sex worker but she is shown to just really want to be loved um, because she's with this guy Roach um, and he's not a very nice person. But Wally, the postal worker, is kind of secretly in love with her and she just wants to feel loved and she wants to feel wanted. And so the collector, he kind of pounces on that and he says to her, you know, look, I will love you. You know, I will be there for you. And she completely falls for it. And it makes me think, am I strong-willed enough to not fall prey to the collector? And I've been thinking about this a lot. And I kind of feel like if the collector came to me in the form of Keanu Reeves and said to me, I will give you everything that you want and all you have to do... I can't, I can't, even, I can't even say it with a straight face because I, I know that I'd do it. I'd be rubbish. I'd be a rubbish Geraldine. And that is why we have Jada Pinkett. <laughs> because I would be rubbish at it. Um, anyway, so the collector, he's enthralled by Geraldine because she doesn't seem to have a weakness. She is so strong and so determined. And in a way, she's kind of like this ultimate prize for him. Because he knows out of all of this kind of ragtag group, she's probably the one that's most likely to be Breaker's heir. And so he has to go all out to entice her. But really, her ability to resist him just kind of enrages him further. And it's just, oh, it's just such a brilliant scene. That scene at the end, uh, the final encounter, I call it the dance with the devil in the pale moonlight. And I know that's kind of coining a phrase from Batman. But it kind of is a bit like that. And and Tom Pollock, who was Universal's chairman at the time, he was actually insistent on having this final encounter between the collector and Geraldine to be more sexual in nature. And it was the director, Ernest Dickerson, who basically insisted that the collector will seduce his victims, like he will try and get them to convert uh, because he wants them on his side, but he's not a sexual being. Uh, it couldn't possibly be a sexual thing even though, because of the chemistry between the Collector and Geraldine, that it feels like it could be. But it's not the Collector's desire to have sex with women. All he wants, all his desire is, is to get the key and turn the earth into this massive demonic playground. So it was basically 
the director and the cast uh, against this particular chairman of Universal. I mean, essentially, this guy wanted some sort of glorified rape scene. And yeah, we don't like that. That is not good. Like, consent is nice. Consent is good. (laughs) The thing is, is it's so common. It was so tropey in like, you know, bad 80s horror movies to have rapey scenes. And it's something that it's never necessary to have a rapey scene. It just isn't. Um, And I'm so glad, I'm so, so glad that Demon Knight does not succumb to that. And that the collector is literally, he doesn't care about sex. Like, he's a demon. He just wants her to convert. He just wants her to be with him. Uh, And he wants her more than anything, not because of sex or, or anything like that, but because she is the heir. If he gets her, then he gets the key. And that's what he wants. The collector's flaming crotch was a compromise in the end. Uh, So they agreed with Dickerson and the cast on the collector's inability to fornicate uh, with Geraldine. But Ernest Dickerson had some other ideas, uh, especially for the demonic Cordelia. And he basically wanted her demonic form to have a severe case of vagina dentata. Uh, And if you've seen the movie Teeth, then you will know exactly what I mean. Uh, But they basically made up these very extravagant images of exactly what uh, Cordelia's demon form would look like. I can't say I've actually seen any, but the picture in my mind, I mean, it's a brilliant picture and I think it would have absolutely been brilliant in the movie, but they obviously didn't go that way, which is a shame really, uh, because I would have liked to have seen that special effect. Um, And the special effects themselves, uh, which are mostly practical, Uh, I would say like 98, 99% practical. Uh, So that included a cast of John Shook, who played Sheriff Tupper's head. Uh, There was famously at the start of the movie, uh, there is a scene where the collector punches him in the face and it basically goes straight through. The head was moulded to look like the actor and it was filled with, well, stuff that looks like guts. So spaghetti, kidney beans, sausages. And basically, so when Billy Zane punches the head his hand goes straight through and all of this these kind of guts in inverted commas spills out the scene where the collector who is outside so this is the scene after that and he cuts his hand and he spills bright green blood the blood was actually the inside of glow sticks because who hasn't opened up a glow stick for the goo inside i think everyone has that was spilled on the ground outside the inn and that produces the demons who rise up in kind of this epic gross kind of birthing scene uh which is brilliant but was also a direct homage to jason and the argonauts because ernest dickerson is a massive ray harryhausen fan as are we all the demons themselves actually proved to be a bit of a bone of contention budgetarily uh in the interim before filming started there were two versions of demon knight that were written one with demons and one without demons while still also being called Demon Knight. So the idea for the one without demons was that they would be men in suits with sunglasses, a little bit like men in black. Basically, uh, the collector would be a Bible salesman. I mean, just even speaking it, it sounds rubbish. Uh, And I don't think the movie would be so iconic with men in black as demons. Uh, And thankfully, Universal agreed because they realised that this was a really rubbish idea and they coughed up more money to get the actual demons. Uh, They are stuntmen in full body prosthetics, walking on stilted legs, 
and just look truly amazing. And to keep standing on those stilts, the actors had to continually walk around like they couldn't stop. And the demons in this movie are some of the most brilliantly designed creatures. Um, I mean, obviously, it's all prosthetics. It's all practical effects. They're just truly, you know, menacing and spooky. And they have these amazing green eyes as well. Uh, and obviously, when they get hit in the eyes, you get this brilliant special effect. And I know it's not real, but this brilliant kind of green lightning. It's wicked. Um, I love the individual designs of each. It'd be really easy for this movie to have every single demon look the same. And just kind of say, well, we'll just copy these prosthetics and have everyone look the same. No, each demon is distinguishable from another. And they all have these kind of mad hair pieces and the faces look different and they have all these weird piercings. I mean, it's just really brilliant. The, the design of these creatures is fantastic. You know I love practical effects. And Demon Knight just delivers. Like, it, this movie delivers everything. Is it a perfect movie? I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it really does deliver. And that's thanks to special effects makeup designer Todd Masters. He also worked on James Gunn's Slither, which is also a brilliant film, by the way, uh, and took inspiration from Dead Alive, aka Brain Dead, and basically just wanted to create these really kind of varied, scary, menacing looks for these demons. And it really works. I mean, even the Crypt Keeper himself. He's kind of bookended at the start and beginning uh, and he kind of has this bit and I looked at it quite carefully because I was like, what What were they trying to do here? But he has this bit where he's like this weird CGI creation. He's, It looks very bad. It, it does look very rudimentary. But when he's a physical puppet, he looks terrific. I keep saying on this podcast, it's so important to have something tangible there. And CGI, especially early 90s CGI, just never cuts it. I mean, unless you're talking Jurassic Park. In, I mean, this does not have the budget of Jurassic Park, let me tell you. Um, but he's terrific. And obviously, I wanted this to be a very quick bonus episode. It's actually turned out to be a lot longer than I wanted. Um, but the thing about Demon Knight is on the surface, it's this sort of standard horror comedy. Uh, but you kind of peel back the layers of this movie and you see this wonderful attempt at world building and and this vast array of characters with their own flaws i mean sure they're a bit tropey occasionally but they're kind of supposed to be they're supposed to be this kind of cast of every people it's supposed to be a bit of a scummy rundown in that's kind of the point the only character who doesn't really fit a trope is geraldine um she is the final girl but she's not your typical final girl She's an African-American woman on probation. Uh, additionally, she doesn't scream and ask men for help. She's fighting from the very beginning. Uh, when Breaker tells Geraldine that she's the next in line to be the hero, she remarks how she's not the right type of person. It's quite interesting, really, that a character like that wouldn't think that she's the right type of person, because she clearly is. She's looking at herself the way that everyone else looks at her uh, in this universe as a black woman with a criminal record, obviously someone who's routinely shunned and not given chances, purely because she is a criminal, she's female, and she's black. But the character of Geraldine grows exponentially throughout this movie. And at the end of it, she is the hero. She is the person who is 
taking control of the situation. Um, and she is exactly the sort of hero that we need to see more of in our movies. And bear in mind as well, uh, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago on Scream, uh, the character of Sydney Prescott. And Sydney Prescott was seen as breaking the mould for the final girl. But this was the year before Sydney Prescott. And a lot of credit is given to Sydney for being this kind of new breed of a female horror heroine. But really, that should go to Geraldine. Uh, Geraldine should be the one we're praising as being a great example of a final girl. Uh, Geraldine is up there with Sydney Prescott, as far as I'm concerned. Although Geraldine didn't have multiple sequels, you know, to build upon her character, uh, she is just as formative and interesting and important as Sydney Prescott. Because in 1995, I mean, I spoke a little bit about this in Scream, the horror genre was really experiencing a bit of an issue uh, in the early 90s. It was almost like the, the genre was lost, especially kind of the slasher genre was quite lost. Um, so this movie kind of feels a little bit unprecedented because it's a precedent to have a movie build its world and, and pay it off and have a great villain and good effects and finish with a black woman being the final girl but then have it all directed by a black man as well. It feels very much like we, as the viewing public, we've let down Demon Knight because this movie should be as well-loved and respected as anything else that came out in horror in the 90s. And the fact that it isn't, it's a bit of a travesty, really. Because like I say, Scream is Scream came out the following year and it's heralded for revitalising the horror genre. It was something that New Nightmare had tried two years previous and kind of in between those two movies, obviously those are two Wes Craven movies. And this is not directed by someone like Wes Craven. I mean, Ernest Dickerson, he's not a very well-known director. But it feels like in between those two movies, Demon Knight came out and it feels like it was slept on. Uh, I mean, appreciating the fact that these are completely different subgenres of horror. This was a movie that I saw and it stuck with me. And there's a reason why it stuck with me, because it kind of spoke to me, actually, uh, on, on many different levels. Um, and I think maybe that was something to do with the fact that it was Tales from the Crypt. It kind of makes it a bit more accessible to non-horror fans uh, like me. <laughs> I, am, I am not the biggest fan of horror, as you know. But, you know, who can appreciate the humour of the TV show? Uh, and I know as well, when I posted on social media that I watched demon night recently a few people really expressed a deep love for this movie it feels like this movie is kind of starting to attain this cult classic status uh and if it is that's rightly deserved by the way but i want to see way more love for demon night and i'm really hoping that i put this episode out on halloween and that so many people come out of the woodwork and just say yes i love demon night too because it really is so much fun it's so much more important than it or we give it credit for because it isn't very well known and it's not very accessible either. So I had a look on streaming services here in the UK. They don't have it. Uh, you can rent it for a small price on Amazon, which is what I did. And then I looked for a Blu-ray or a DVD. The DVD here is only available as a Region 1 NTSC import, um, which is no good for me. Uh, and the Blu-ray that is available uh, is expensive and you have to import it. So you've got a choice from either the US or Australia. And it kind of feels somewhat redundant, really, to say 
more people should watch this movie when it's actually so difficult to find because accessibility is probably the most important thing uh, for any movie. If you can't find it on a streaming service or on DVD, then no one's going to watch it. So I feel like I want to petition the streaming services to stock Demon Knight. I think it would be great on Amazon Prime Video. I know that it's there on rent, but stick it on the streaming service and people will just lap it up, I swear. It's so good. Uh, as I mentioned as well, there is a brilliant documentary which is called Under Siege, The Making of Demon Knight. That came out in 2015 uh, and I watched it and it's really, really, really good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it has interviews with all the cast uh, except Jada Pinkett and it's very clear that everyone had a great time making this movie. Uh, they all have really great memories from it. This movie is so good. Billy Zane, you guys. <laughs> Billy, Billy Zane. I mean... He's so special in this movie. I can't get I can't get past how good Billy Zane is. And how much I kind of want Billy Zane to take me away from everything. <laughs> anyway, moving on. So the obligatory Keanu reference for this movie, uh I did want to do an obligatory Keanu reference, even though it's a bonus episode, just because it's really easy <laughs> to do this. So if we want a real link. Uh, a real obligatory Keanu reference. Obviously, Jada Pinkett worked with Keanu on the Matrix sequels, and William Sadler also worked with him on Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey because he played Death. Uh, but, you know, in all honesty, Keanu can be my demon knight whenever he likes. Uh, if he wants to collect, then all he needs to do is come round. So, yeah, Keanu, you can seduce me, we can do a bit of dancing. I would sacrifice the world for you. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm ridiculous, aren't I? Uh, it's because it's Halloween, guys. I'm just... The ghosts and the ghouls, they make me crazy. Uh, Demon Knight was released on Friday the 13th of January, 1995, because obviously uh, it actually opened at number three at the US box office. That was behind Higher Learning and Legends of the Fall. Financially, Demon Knight had a quite a low budget, actually, of $12 million. And that money was spent quite frugally, uh, despite some questionable CGI. The effects mostly hold up, actually, because uh, they're truly great. Uh, and it actually ended up making $21 million worldwide. Uh, so, arguably, it made a little bit of money in the post-credits. The Crypt Keeper himself announces a sequel called Dead Easy. Uh, obviously, Dead Easy never materialised. A kind of semi-sequel of sorts. Uh, it's not really a sequel to this movie, but it's the second Tales from the Crypt movie is Bordello of Blood. That was released in 1996. Widely seen as inferior. Uh, and the only link being the key from this movie makes an appearance in that movie. And an unmade third movie called Body Count was planned but never made. It kind of feels almost inevitable that Tales from the Crypt will get rebooted. Uh, it feels ripe, actually, for it right now. It was mooted a couple of years ago, I think in 2017, with M. Night Shyamalan, but the project was cancelled. Uh, it kind of feels like now is the right time to bring Tales from the Crypt back. Uh, and additionally, now's the time to celebrate Demon Knight, because it's great. I don't think I've made it clear enough how much I enjoy Demon Knight. It's really, really terrific. If you happen upon a copy of Demon Knight, or you find it on TV... 
oh, please watch it. You will just love it. It's brilliant fun. Right, I'm going to close out this episode now because it's it's actually been a lot longer than I wanted it to be. Uh, but I want to say uh, I feel like Demon Knight is so underrated. Uh, not just because it's loads of fun and kind of belies its low budget, but the fact it feels really groundbreaking, actually. Because let's summarise, a black woman saves the world. And she does it by using her wits, her intelligence and her strength. It's directed by a black director as well. The cast is pretty much all great. William Sadler carries the straight man role. I've not really talked too much about William Sadler. Um, because to be honest, I've kind of run out of time now. But Billy Zane, oh my God, Billy Zane is just simply astonishing as the collector. He is made for the role. He gives off the right amount of sexuality and charisma and menace. You've got to ask the question... Why has horror cinema slept on this movie? Why isn't it given the same amount of props as something like Scream? I'm not a fan of horror, genuinely. It's not my favourite genre. But there are some really standout movies that I completely love. Um, I've covered a lot of them. I've covered things like The Thing and The Cabin in the Woods and Little Shop of Horrors and Scream and Coraline. I've even done an episode on Buffy the Vampire Slayer last Halloween and all of those things have such brilliance about them but this movie demon knight entranced me quite literally when i was younger and it stuck with me enough to remember it years and years and years later this movie deserves more than to be slept on everyone should know about this movie and that is why i wanted to put this episode out because i really wanted to talk about demon knight and i really hope that anyone who's listening if you haven't seen Demon Knight, please watch it. It is so much fun. Rent it on Amazon Prime. It's like three quid to rent. It's so worth it. I mean, what else can I say? I love this movie. I think it's brilliant. And Billy Zane. <laughs> Billy Zane. I mean, Billy Zane, though. Anyway, I've run really long on this episode. I genuinely only wanted it to be about half an hour long. And I've just talked and talked and talked about demon knight no gubbins at the end uh just a massive thank you for listening uh massive thanks for your support uh all of the fab feedback that i get all of the lovely messages and all of that i love doing this podcast please watch demon knight uh, <laughs> and uh happy halloween to you all bye Movie